Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. I must commence with a confession. When our old friends at Hanover House asked me to select the contents of this volume, common decency demanded that I should shrink away from the awful vision of coals of fire showering down upon my head from those whose favorites had been omitted. Instead, and I admit brazenly, I pounced upon the opportunity to air my own views. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What have British novels to offer readers? Which are the great British novels? Why should we read British literature? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour is Mrs. Ellie Wagner. Mrs. Wagner teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition for Wittenberg Academy, and also serves as host of Shakespeare Troupe, a popular club here at Wittenberg Academy. Ellie, it is great to have you back on the Wittenberg Hour. It is very great to be back. I'm very excited to be back. It feels like it's been a second, so... It has. It's it's been uh, seemingly forever. So this is fantastic. So the impetus for this episode comes from a recent essay in the Imaginative Conservative entitled Great British Novels, in which Joseph Pierce ponders what he would teach, were he to teach, a Britlet survey course. Now, listeners more attuned to British pop culture will, will hear great British, and fill it in with something like Bake Off. But we are not taking on baked goods. We are taking on books. Now, some of our listeners may be set in their Britlet lists and have no reason to shift. But for this episode, instead of great British novels being a statement or a descriptor, we are turning it into a question. The quote at the top of this episode comes to us from Adrian Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's son. I thought it was a perfect opening for an episode that perhaps compiles a British literature list outside the typical. Those of our listeners with deep loyalty to their Brit lit lists may be readying the tar and feathers, but we shall forge ahead anyway. Ellie, we have discussed British novels in the past in various contexts, and hopefully our listeners have picked up many of those novels since. If you happen to be a new listener, head back to episodes 20, 21, 34, 35, 48, and 49 to enjoy all the lists we have tackled thus far. That's a teaser to let all of you know that more lists are coming. Episode 14 highlights G.K. Chesterton, a favorite of both of us. Is there something about British literature that makes it superior or set apart from other genres of literature? I, I should be careful with this word superior uh, because that uh, that that insinuates that somehow British literature is better than all uh, other kinds of literature, and uh, and and I know how you feel about that, uh, but I'm going to let you uh, delve into that a little bit uh, in that regard. 
Sure. So certainly there is not necessarily a group or country's literature that is superior to others in actuality. However, it is a question of taste, of course. And this is something we have to consider whenever we discuss um, art in any form, so literature or music or theater or visual art. This is something I actually talked to my students about yesterday is that one can regard Jackson Pollock as one of the number one painters in America. And they found that a very amusing statement because how can you have more than one number one painter? And the answer, of course, is preference. So we can argue about who is the best, but it does come down to personal preference at some point to acknowledge that there are certain painters, certain writers, certain forms of literature that are superior in general of their kind, but then it comes down to personal choice, which specific becomes your favorite. British literature, perhaps in its superiority, seems to be very, very many people's favorite. It is very well beloved. As an English major, I think it was probably the most beloved genre of literature, even surpassing American literature as a whole in the English department and at school in general. So I think it is more beloved in that sense. I think there is a way that we, as native English speakers, find it very fascinating to read about a different culture and different time periods in our own language and therefore getting the full um, ac- getting full access to the actual creativity and use of language that the authors have. So we have our original language and we can read it in, in the original language and appreciate it in the original language, but it is still foreign to us. It is still something we get to explore and be introduced to through literature. So I would say that's what's unique about it for us as an English-speaking people and for those of us in America who are particularly drawn to British literature. I am fine with British literature, but it is not certainly the one that I would ever turn to. And that's kind of what makes it fun to talk about it, is that British literature is not my bosom friend, I guess. It is one I enjoy, but certainly not one I will ever turn to above all others. So it's important to talk about this and to talk about different genres and why they are or are not significant. There seems to be kind of this other world sort of appeal to British literature, if that makes sense. You know, that there was this other time and this other place. And because we don't live that time and we don't live that place, um, you know, even when we read uh, American literature, for example, there's, uh, there's a familiarity just because we've experienced the the lands or the the settings in which these novels or uh whatever take place but with british literature most of us haven't traveled over to england or great britain uh and and so there's this this intrigue with with the inf with there's this intrigue with that which we haven't experienced and somehow uh, whether from whatever influence it, it has come we have it in our head that somehow that this other this british other is 
more superior to that which we have experienced. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. And something I've actually done a lot of personal research on in the last year, especially over the summer, is the concept of literate versus illiterate cultures. So cultures that do have written work and cultures that do not have written work in which they pass their stories down. And there are pros and cons to each. Obviously, the modern world has fully embraced literate culture rather than clinging to the idea of illiterate culture. And there are a lot of fun taglines that you can learn about that and how it's developed our speech and our ability to tell stories and the way our brains develop. But the one of the biggest arguments we've had for literate culture as a whole is to be able to be exposed, of course, to these stories from places we've never been, um, which we can't do if we don't have people from those places to come and tell us in an illiterate culture. And just, I think you did hit it, um, hit the nail on the head that we have, um, like in America, if you're reading a novel, we have this concept of Washington, D.C. We have this concept of where Gettysburg is, or even if you read the word Wyoming, we, we know we have this idea. It doesn't seem so far removed from us, but we, you know, we know where it is even, and we learn about it in school and we talk about it. Whereas the average American does not necessarily know where Kent is in England or Canterbury is in England. And so there still is this kind of mystical idea about it. And then there is this like drawn out culture that we are not a part of, even if we had some part in it at some point in history, we are not British citizens. And so there are going to be these normal average aspects of British life that we are unfamiliar with. And there's this ability to have delight in the extraordinary for us when reading British literature that we wouldn't get in America because American literature feels too close to home to give us that form of fancy most often. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's an intrigue with the unfamiliar. Uh, Joseph Pierce the author of the article I referenced earlier put works on his Britlit list, such as Great Expectations, A Tale of Two Cities, Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, Jekyll and Hyde, Dorian Gray, The Man Who Was Thursday, 1984, Brave New World. He also mentioned Come Rack, Come Rope. I wasn't familiar with that one. The Quiet American, The Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, but he did not include anything by Tolkien because he made the claim that either uh, it, those those were either uh, epics uh, more in the line of Homer or they were fairy stories, uh, and so he he didn't include them in in his in his list. So, Ellie, just for the sake of controversy, because sometimes uh, when it's not really controversial, uh, controversy is kind of fun. Uh, are there any books or authors not on your list that we are going to discuss here in a few moments? Are there any books or authors not on your list that might surprise our readers? I, I certainly can think of one off the bat, so I'll pose that. And then you'll have to tell me if there were any you were surprised that I left off. Um, but the one that is going to be very obvious that I chose not to include is Jane Eyre or actually anything by Charlotte Bronte. Um, and that is because I would argue that while 
Charlotte Bronte and her sisters have very, very powerful effect on British literature and are very significant to read, I would not put them in as one of the great British novelists. I would argue that their novels do not add to the core of literature the way that they are often beloved to. I would have an argument that specifically Jane Eyre is not all it's hyped up to be. So that's my controversial opinion is I do not have, I do have a Bronte for those of you who are up in arms. There is a Bronte novel on here, but it is not Charlotte's. Um, and it's very intentionally not a Charlotte Bronte novel. All right. Well, it's a good thing that uh, we are uh, recording this and, and and people only get our audio uh, and they can't actually come and tar and feather us. So this is this is good. You know, as you were as you were mentioning that, uh, you know, I'm I'm always curious about things. And I wonder when did Jane Eyre and now that I'm uh, verbalizing this, I, I wonder, uh, you know, what has made, you know, the list in these typical, uh, you know, Brit lit classes, um, what has made the, the, the choices for those classes? Um, you know, is it just that, you know, somebody at some point in history chose Jane Eyre and then everybody else was like, oh, well, uh, obviously Jane Eyre, you know, you know, that's what everybody else does. So we should probably do it too. You know, is it just a matter of, well, other people did it, so I should, or are there some characteristics that people have taken into consideration over time? Now, my, uh, uh, on, on my list, you know, if I, if I were to put together a list, um, there would probably be, uh, more Dickens than there should be. I love Dickens. Uh, I haven't uh, come across a Dickens that I didn't like. And then uh, one thing that, you know, in terms of how do we define literature, right? Uh, you know, is is Shakespeare literature? I mean, you know, these, these sorts of things generally... Um, Shakespeare isn't included in Brit Lit courses. Um, so that's another interesting one to ponder uh, in that regard. So, um, you know, what about uh, like George Eliot and uh, guys like that? Um, you know, should they be on Brit Lit lists? Uh, so there, you know, of course, as with every conversation that we have, uh, there there are certainly more episodes that that we could do, and and truly, with some of these authors, uh, we could do just as we did with G.K. Chesterton. You know, we could do an entire episode just on on one of these guys. Uh, but it's interesting to think about, you know, what are the characteristics? Um, we've already talked about kind of that other, um, and. I want our listeners, as we are going through your list here, um, I want I want them to think about, you know, what makes these uniquely British, other than the fact that the authors happen to be from that location. You know, is there something collectively that that draws these these works together? So, with that. Let's 
jump in with your list, uh, which, as always, uh, will will intrigue our listeners uh, without a doubt. Sure. So the first one that I put in is not a novel. It is the Ecclesiastical History of the English People by the Venerable Bede. Um, the Ecclesiastical History is just a history of the Church of Rome and it, and not of the Church of Rome, of the Church of England. Um, you can tell which literature I really like by that slip up. That was a little Freudian slip there. Um, the Ecclesiastical History, I think, especially as we talk about our Christian listeners is such a delightful book. It really is. When you hear ecclesiastical history, I think you also kind of automatically hear the words snooze button. Um, however, the ecclesiastical history is just a delight to read and it is for all ages. I think I read it the first time probably as a freshman in high school or an eighth grader. I don't remember which one it would have been and loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thought it was really interesting, thought it was really well written and really engaging. And I just became very fond of The Venerable Bede because of that. I just thought it was a great book. And I think as Christian readers and Christian listeners, um, it's really important to see how other cultures in other times lived their lives of faith and to see the struggles that they had specifically in terms of their faith and revolving around their faith and maybe the politics that were happening at the time and the ecclesiastical history is just that. It walks you through lifetimes of Christians and lets you see how they lived through their own personal struggles and their own hardships in order to keep the faith and die as faithful Christians. And so I think it's just a delight and it's something that everyone should read. It's very significant. It's very early. I believe B died in like 735 AD. So it's a very early history of the ecclesiastical people in Britain. And so it gives you a really good overview of what it looked like to live as a Christian while there were still many Celts and there were many controversies between what it meant to be a Celtic Christian and what it meant to be a non-Celtic Christian. So I think it's just a very important novel to read and a very important history to remember as we think about our lives as Christians today and the struggles that we have in comparison with the lives of our British predecessors in England fighting and advocating and struggling on the sake of their faith. So I think that's a very important novel for all of us to read. Yeah. I have always found uh, that work uh, intriguing as well. And when you mention Bede, of course, as Lutherans, we have to uh, bring up uh, at least uh, those of us who love hymns, which Lutherans should love hymns. Um, uh, Bede wrote one of the hymns in our hymnal, uh, A Hymn of Glory Let Us Sing, was written by Bede. Uh, typically, that's uh, considered an ascension hymn, uh, but is is fantastic um, uh, in general. Um, and thinking about you know the history of Christians, um, our heritage, you know, in the church is much larger than 
you know, just our own circumstances, right? When we talk about history, we talk about that all the time, that uh, one of the reasons we study history is to understand our own times, but also to understand that we are part of something larger than our own time and space uh, right now. And Bede really does a nice job of, of painting that picture for us and bringing us through the trials and tribulations and, and all of that. Um, and in the Lutheran Church, we actually uh, commemorate Bede. He's on our list of, uh, of commemoration dates. And so Bede actually has a pretty significant place in terms of, of how we view him and the thanks to God we give uh, for him. So I think this is a fantastic way uh, to start this. And certainly, I would imagine, uh, not an anticipated place to start. Um, I'm, I'm sure our listeners were not expecting uh, Bede to be, uh, to be first on, on the list. Um, so let's continue forth. Uh, th- your, your next book um, actually... Is, is kind of a nice transition from Bede, um, and I'll let you explain why. Yeah, so the next selection is many, many years down the line from Bede, um, but it is Paradise Lost by Milton. And this is a great, great transition from Bede, of course, because it is also concerned with all things spiritual and all things Christian. Um, Milton wrote this piece towards the end of his life. It is arguably the the English epic. So the the version in the English tongue of a Beowulf or of a um, Odyssey or Iliad. And I frankly don't feel <laughs> even slightly afraid of making that claim simply because it is not my claim. It is the claim of Anthony Eslin. I am actually currently studying this with Anthony Eslin, specifically just Paradise Lost. And he makes that claim, and I agree with that claim, and am not afraid to make it with such a great name backing such a claim. I've made many a more wild claim without such um, encouraging backing. But Paradise Lost is such a just a unique thing, and I really think almost every Christian arguably should read it and should discuss it and should really sit with it. It is a creative retelling of the creation and the fall into sin um, and the loss of paradise. And his ability to portray, and and I'm already so impressed by my students that I have had who are able to quote lines from it to me, even as freshmen in high school, when they haven't read it yet. They are already familiar with some of those lines and with some of the greater things that the poem does. Um, One of my students told me this summer that it is tied for his favorite um, character rendition of Satan, which is such a funny thing for a young student to already have favorites of, is a literary portrayal of Satan himself. But it is really brilliant and it makes you ask questions. And I think although Milton was, of course, not Lutheran, the questions that he raises are really important questions to raise. So these questions of um, what does it mean to be in hell? 
What does it mean to not be right with God? What does that look like? What does that mean on a physical sense, on like a physical realm? What does that mean in a spiritual realm? What does that mean in a philosophical way? And so you are able to ask these questions about levels of removal, kind of levels of separation from God. And that's really what this novel is about, is separation from God. And it is shaped in a way that the most separated from God, the devils and Lucifer himself, Satan himself, are fully separated from God. And they know that they truly do not have any power or willingness to be rejoined with God. And so their goal becomes to pull as many other people into separation from God as possible. And that is kind of what sets up all of the contents of Genesis in Milton's interpretation. And it's just really brilliantly done. It is a very thought-provoking thing to read, although I don't think it's actually very hard as far as epics go. It has such delightful prose, well, not prose, such delightful poetry, such delightful meter, and just by prose, I mean the very specific language choice. So just his words that he chooses to use, each individual word is so thought-provoking that I really encourage everyone to read it and read it out loud if possible. This is a great one to hear out loud. So I think you, you really are a fool to read British literature and love British literature if Paradise Lost you haven't read yet. Um, go ahead and read it. It it really does color so much of British literature. He is not quite a contemporary of Shakespeare. I want to say he's maybe 20 years after Shakespeare's really publishing things. They would have lived at the same time. I'm not sure that they wrote at the same time. They may have, however. And I think it just adds a great dimension to learning about Shakespeare to know that Paradise Lost is a dialogue that we have happening at the same time. I think it just, it really colors our understanding of Britain and the questions they were asking and the incorporation of church that has always been a part of the history of Britain. Britain has had church be very actively a part of its history since the time of Bede and his writings. And Paradise Lost gives us that religious perspective to a time period we usually spend discussing Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare alone. But Paradise Lost really does add that religious contemplation, which is very core to British history and British literature. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I would imagine that in large part, Paradise Lost probably would not make your typical Britlet list, right? I mean, we have, I, I hope our our listeners will be considering the fact that we have such a narrow view in general, a narrow view of British literature, you know, that, that it really encompasses uh, this kind of, uh, certain, uh, you know, the, the streets are dirty, it rains all the time, and everyone wears black. Uh, you know, that, that, sort of, um, that sort of characterization of, of British literature. Um, you know, we have this, this seemingly um, pretty typecast 
narrow view of of British literature. And I think the first two selections uh, that we've discussed here, uh, the Ecclesiastical History and Paradise Lost, really uh, shoot that list out of the water in terms of of really broadening and expanding um, what is British literature. And, and maybe uh, we'll, we'll get our uh, listeners out of maybe their narrow view of of British literature. Now you bring up uh, the fact that that Milton and Shakespeare would have been around the same time period, and I always like to bring this up. You know, also at that same time period, right? We have um, folks from England from. Uh, uh, various parts of England, but we have pilgrims coming over uh, to what would become the United States. And it's interesting because when we, in our minds, without intending to, I think, uh, <laughs> we, there's, there's some sort of like portal that that we have fixed in the Atlantic Ocean, right? That as soon as people got on boats and came over uh, to what became the United States, like they went through this this imaginary portal and somehow became Americanized on their way over, right? You know, so like there's the British, they're over there, and then once you landed on these shores. Uh, then you all of a sudden became different. But, you know, there's, we have to remember that there was a pretty close connection uh, between, you know, the early colonists uh, because of where they came and uh, these guys that we're talking about, you know, Shakespeare and Milton and, uh, and all of these. And the influence, I think, is, uh, is something that we, should certainly at least consider, uh, if not, uh, go so far as uh, to regard. I think so, yes. And I think this goes um, back into this idea, this overarching idea that these two, you know, these two are not on typical British literature lists. It goes back to the idea that lists are by nature restrictive they and reductive. They reduce an entire history and an entire collection of literature into a small list. And this happens even in universities. So we have to realize that when we take our great British literature classes, you know, Brit Lit 1 and Brit Lit 2 in college, this is not the entirety of British literature. And this is, may not even be the entirety of highly influential British literature. I took Great Brit, I, I took Brit Lit during college, Paradise Lost was not on that list. I read Paradise Lost in college with a different class, but then you lose the mental connection unless you yourself make it often or unless the professor makes it that this is another of the Great Brit Lit books. And so I think we have to make sure we have this dialogue when we are reading things and when we're reading American literature, especially that early American literature that is highly influenced by British literature that we are reading and discussing what is happening in Britain at the same time as what is happening in America, because this is what these people are concerned with. They came over with the same questions that the British people who stayed had in their head, their philosophical and uh, political and religious questions are the same. And we have to watch them grow into different questions as they 
as two groups begin to uh, encounter different things, but they do begin in the same space. So we have to kind of remember to do that. And that's a good reminder to us as teachers to connect these things for our students as we talk about them. So I talk about a few different things in both of my classes, and I have to remember to connect them to a greater timeline and a greater group of um, like work, just in general, of creative work that is all in discussion and interaction with each other. And I think as students, we also have to remember that all of these things layer on top of each other. And Britain doesn't just immediately pause when you cross the portal and then you can show back up whenever you want to. And it'll be the same or it will just have magically started playing in a different spot. Once you get there, it's doing all these things and they're all processing everything at the same time in different ways. And so we do have to have that constant discourse between the groups of literature. And we're actually going to talk about that a little later on with one of the other books is this discourse between different literatures. So we'll talk about that a little more with non-American culture as well. So the next book on your list, uh, again, uh, I think helps us uh, war against perhaps, uh, perhaps that's too violent a term, uh, but uh, war against this uh literature reductionism right <laughs> that that we we narrow ourselves uh to a certain idea of of this is this is what uh british literature is um because it might not be uh a book that you would typically find in a brit lit class or on a list of of great british literature Yes. So this is The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. I think a lot of us are familiar with H.G. Wells and his name in general. This novel is actually, it's a novella. It's quite short. I think it's about 90 pages or maybe 110. It is lesser well-known. I've heard of fewer people who have read it. But I think it's really important, especially to a discussion of Britain and what makes Britain unique and what is integral to British culture as we look and study its history. So as we look at and study that history, one of the things Britain has always been concerned with is the idea of progress and of space, you know, like another frontier. So we have these colonies that they're exploring and we need to realize that that progression and that attachment to progression has consequences and can be a good thing, but can be a very bad thing. And that really is what The Island of Dr. Moreau is concerned with. The Island of Dr. Moreau is about a man who is shipwrecked on an island and meets Dr. Moreau, who lives on the island, and he is really the only person living on the island, except for the people that Dr. Moreau has created. So he has taken progression far enough that he was sent off from the mainland to kind of exile on an island where he continued his experiments. And what he is interested in is vivisection, is the idea of combining humans with animals to make sentient creatures of animals in order to have more companionship. And progressing for the sake of progressing. So he does also just want to do this for the sake of progression. And 
when we study Britain, we do realize there is all of this, you know, we talk about the Industrial Revolution, we talk about um, progress in general, Britain has a huge hand in that. Britain has a huge hand in the expansion and even the connection of the world through its colonies. We become more of a global world rather than a world of different nations who do not interact with each other on a global scale. And Britain is a huge part of us narrowing that and then making it into instead one singular global world that is constantly in interaction with that. And so I think Island of Dr. Moreau is very significant because it even has this underlying message of asking its readers what what progression is good progression and is there anyone anywhere on the earth that is safe from this expansion once we begin to expand to become a global place is there room still for nationalistic just kind of individualism do we have the ability to just go about our own lives without interacting with or learning about other cultures. So I think it, it asks a lot of questions that are very important to Britain in general and does so in an incredibly engaging way. It's easy to read this in one sitting. It's very engaging and very interesting. It reminds me a lot of Frankenstein. Frankenstein is not on this list purely because we've talked about it before, but I certainly would put it on the great British novels list. Um, and so this, I think, asks similar questions to Frankenstein, but is written at a later date and is able to also ask questions about progressivism in, as a whole in a way that Mary Shelley had not seen yet. So I think it's a very significant novel and a really underappreciated novel of Wells. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I have not read that one, and so I'm looking forward to adding that to my list of works that I need to read. And uh, I always like uh, uh, when, when you say that it's, that's, a, that it's a short one that I can tackle easily. Uh, so that, that makes it, that makes it doable, uh, for me to put it at the top of my list, uh, and, and knock that one out. Um, these questions of just because we can, does that mean we should, uh, I think these continue to be, um, kind of this underlying, uh, current among the great novels that we've discussed uh, through through many of the episodes that we have done together, and you know, at the beginning of this episode, you know, I talked about you know what are what are some of the things that that make British literature literature, and what are some of the things that make um, literature great. And, and maybe that's one of the things, you know, maybe uh, the the great literature, regardless of whether it's British or American or Russian or whatever the case may be, um, that it it on some level uh, wrestles with that question of just because we can, does that mean we should? Stay tuned next week for episode 65 in which we will continue this discussion of the great British novel. Our word worth repeating 
for episode 64 is British. Now, you might be wondering, why is this significant enough for it to be called to our attention in our word worth repeating portion of the episode? And really, it's not because British is anything dramatic or controversial by any means. But sometimes we don't know to what we are referring when we use the word British. When we say British, are we talking about England? Are we talking about Scotland? Are we talking about Wales? From where does this come? So British pertains to Great Britain or its inhabitants. And to that, uh, Noah Webster in his 1828 dictionary adds it is sometimes applied to the language of the Welsh. Well, that makes sense because Great Britain refers to the island that comprises England, Scotland, and Wales. So when we're talking about Great Britain, that's what we're talking about. The term Great Britain came into official use in 1603. So if you're referring to anything after that, you can certainly refer to that as Great Britain. It came into use when King James I, who is also James VI of Scotland, acceded to the throne of England and Wales. Scotland joined this legislative union in 1707. The United Kingdom is a political unit that includes these countries and Northern Ireland. And the British Isles is a geographical term that refers to the United Kingdom, Ireland, and surrounding smaller islands such as the Hebrides and the Channel Islands. So the difference here, the distinction here, when we're referring to something British, and British refers to Great Britain, we're referring to that which is England, Scotland, and Wales, or of those nations, and after 1603. So... United Kingdom is a political unit. British Isles is a geographical term. United Kingdom is more expansive than Great Britain. And British Isles is more expansive yet. So, next time you are on Jeopardy, or at a dinner party, or sitting around the table with your family discussing British literature, you'll know exactly to what you are referring and exactly to what your neighbor should be referring. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.